You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Psalm 123, God has blessed our church. If you remember on, on Sunday night, we just went against the trend that I was saying was disturbing. Brother Ray's got up here and saying that. That's a blessing, isn't it? And sing that old hymn of the faith, and God's good to us. Psalm 123 tonight, we're continuing through these psalms, these 15 psalms, this psalter within the songbook of the Bible. And uh, this will be the fourth psalm that we've looked at thus far. And we're on our way to the presence of God. If you study these in the progression as they're written, you'll find that it is that. It is an upward ascent. It is a progression going to a good place. And it's a reminder to you and I as Christians that we are headed somewhere. And I'm glad we're on a journey to a better place, to a good place. And we're on our way toward the presence of God. But look with me here, if you would. In Psalm 120, in Psalm 120, you notice that the pilgrim looks around at the world. And as he looks around at the world, he finds nothing to comfort him there. And that's how it is for the child of God. If you're saved and spiritual, then you're not going to feel at home in this world. In Psalm 121, the pilgrim, the psalmist, looks to the hills. He's looking for hope. He's looking for help. In Psalm 122, he looks at the house of God. And he said, I'm glad when they invited me to go with them to worship together in the house of God. But in Psalm 123... The psalmist or the pilgrim is looking unto the Lord. There's victory in that look, by the way. Look with me here in Psalm 123, and then we're also going to go to Nehemiah chapter 4 here in a minute. In Psalm 123, here's what the Bible says. Unto thee I lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress. So our eyes wait upon the Lord, our God, until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. I want you to take your Bible and turn back to Nehemiah chapter 4. And I'll tell you why here in just a minute, but I want you to see the first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 4. In Nehemiah chapter 4, there is a remnant of God's people who are going about to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The city of God has been a reproach, and they want to bring revival out of the rubble of that city. God is doing a work, and they are doing a work for God. But opposition arises. Look what the Bible said. B.R. Lincoln said, if you and the devil never bump into each other, then you must be running the same direction. So it is good when the devil fights. It reminds us that we're doing the right thing. But look at what happens here in chapter 4, verse 1. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth. Watch the, watch the wording. He was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said... What do these feeble Jews, this is scorn and contempt, will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and 
He said, this is like that little brother who gets muscles when he's standing beside the big brother. He chimes in. He's like, hey, by the way. You know, this is, this is how this would sound. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. So the opposition arises, the contempt is there, the ridicule and the scorn, but victory lies in the response, the reaction. There is an action by the lost world toward the child of God, but the reaction is what makes or breaks victory. And I want you to see what Nehemiah does. He does not respond. He does not verbally attack. He does not retaliate. He looks to God. You see what he does in verse 4? Hear, O our God, for we are despised and turn their reproach, watch this, upon their own head. He said, God, I want you to take care of it. I'm going to look to you. We're going to trust in you, God. You handle the situation. For a little while this evening, I want to look in Psalm 123, and I believe it was probably written during the time of Nehemiah, really, or Ezra, in that time period. And I want us to think about the two stanzas of this psalm, and we'll look at the second stanza first. But here's what I see. Society's vitriol and the servant's vision. Society's vitriol toward the child of God, but the servant's vision. Let's pray. God, I pray for your help tonight to preach through this psalm. I pray that you'd stir our hearts. There's so much truth in this little psalm, these four verses. And I pray that we'd see it clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of reminder, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are called the Psalms of Ascent or the Psalms of Degrees. And literally, as you read these psalms, the idea is these people are going up toward the presence of God. I've already told you that these songs were sung as pilgrims would make their journey to Jerusalem for at least three out of the seven feast days of Israel. What I like about these songs are they are made to be portable. What I mean by that is this is truth you can take with you on the journey. And can I just be honest with you when I preach or any preacher preaches, that is the goal. We are trying to deposit a truth from Scripture into your life that you can take with you on the journey. And I'm glad it's not just good in the house of God, but I'm glad it's good for every day you live out there in the world as well, and you can take it with you wherever you go. Now, there's a simile here to the Christian life because you and I, just as those pilgrims in that day were on their physical journey toward Jerusalem, we're on a spiritual journey every day of our life toward the presence of God. We are strangers and sojourners. We are pilgrims just to pass them through. And we are on our way through this world, thank God for that, and to eternity. I'm glad this is not the best we have to look forward to. I'm glad this is just a little bit of a taste of what's yet to come. God is so good on the journey, but it can't compare to what we're going to experience in the presence of God with the unhindered glory of God for all eternity there sitting at the Savior's feet. I was looking into this psalm, and I think this psalm is both a song and a prayer. When you consider the psalm, it's good to look at it from the bottom back toward the top. In the bottom of the psalm, the last couple of verses, we find the reality of the pilgrim. But at the top of the psalm, we see the response of the pilgrim. This is what I call a hymn for the hard days. It reveals the vitriol that the world has for the child of God and contrasts that with the vision that the child of God has for the Lord. Now, as you look at these songs of degrees, remember, you are surveying about 1,000 years of Hebrew history. 
These 15 songs range in penmen from Moses to David to Hezekiah to Nehemiah to Ezra. So it's good to remember the context, if possible, of the chapter of the song that you are studying. It brings it into clear focus and helps us understand the heart of the man that God used to pen the song. We have here a very good cross-section, if you will, of the heart of God's people throughout all of those years as they faced different difficulties, but God came through and delivered them. Now, I believe that Psalm 123 is a post-exilic psalm. By that, I mean it is after the children of God have left Babylonian captivity. They have returned now to Jerusalem. They are focused on reconstructing the wall and being re-instructed in the Word of God. The remnant is returning to do the work of God and revive the rubble of the city. Now, I know I've preached a series out of Nehemiah. I know pastors preach a lot of Nehemiah and Ezra. And you know, 50,000 or so Jews return. The Persian king gives them the, the, the go-ahead, if you want to go back to the city, and they begin to rebuild the temple. After about 14 years from Ezra arriving, Nehemiah arrives in the city, and he sets out to rebuild the wall. Now, a little background on Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a man who is a stranger in a foreign land when you first find him. He is a servant. He is a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. I think as we read this psalm, we can find that it was penned during this time period because there's some phrases that correlate between Ezra and Nehemiah and this psalm. For example, if you study Ezra and Nehemiah, you find the phrase, the God of heaven, mentioned over and over again. It's interesting how this psalm begins by reminding us that our Lord is the Lord that dwells in the heavens. There's another phrase in Ezra and Nehemiah, and it talks about how the hand of God is at work on somebody's life or in somebody's life. In this psalm, we find that this man looks to the hand of God for direction. Also, I like how the psalm begins. The psalmist talks about himself, singular, I. But then before long, he talks about us. Nehemiah is the same. It begins with one man who gets a burden. But I'm glad it goes a couple chapters, and then the phrase is, let us arise and build. So I think what we find here is a song written from the perspective of a pilgrim living in the days of Nehemiah. You know the story. Nehemiah serves there in the palace of Artaxerxes. He is the servant of that Persian king. One day, a man comes and brings a report about Jerusalem, and the report is not good. He tells him that the walls are broken down, the city is burned with fire, and the whole situation is a reproach upon the name of God. Nehemiah gets a burden to rebuild the city of God. He prays and he fasts for several months, and God gives him the direction to go back and to rebuild the city. Nehemiah goes to the city, He's there. He tours the city through the night with some other men. He sees the destruction. He presents his heart to those people. They agree with him to rise up and rebuild the city. Now Nehemiah and his brethren go to doing that work for God. They're constructing a wall around the city of Jerusalem. There are people there that inhabit that region 
that do not like to see the progress of God's people. They are not thrilled whatsoever that Nehemiah has a vision and Nehemiah has a burden to rebuild the broken wall of Jerusalem. So in chapter 4, they begin to scorn, they show their contempt, they begin to slander, they begin to try to break down the progress that Nehemiah is showing forth. I think that gives us the context of the psalm. Now, let's look at it here together in Psalm 123. The first thing I want us to consider is society's vitriol toward the child of God. Look with me in verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly, look at this word, exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. So the individual who's writing this psalm is an individual that finds themselves the offscouring, the scorn, and the contempt of the society in which they find themselves. They have no friendship in the world, and the world is being no friend to them. They say, everywhere I turn, I'm exceedingly filled with contempt and with scorn. Now, there is a designation or description given of the society that he's living in, and here's what it describes them as. They are at ease and full of pride. Well, that's applicable to today, isn't it? As this pilgrim looks around at the world that he's living in, the Bible describes that world as a world that is absolutely full of themselves and at home in the world. Prideful. You know, there is nothing so demonic as pride. Pride is atheism in practice. Pride is the dethroning of God and the exalting of self. Pride is putting God low and lifting man high. And the crowd that is causing so much turmoil in the life of this child of God is a crowd that the Bible describes as one full of Pride. Now, I didn't plan to preach that in the month of June. It just fits good in the month of June that everywhere you go, they're advertising it as though it's a good quality. They say everyone has pride. Everyone ought to take pride. Well, you can't get any more anti-God than a slogan like that. My Bible doesn't say that. It said I ought to decrease and let God increase. But this crowd here is a crowd that is proud. God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. Pride goes before destruction. There's a few things, seven exactly, that God hates, and pride is the first thing on the list. But the world that he's living in is a world that is proud. What is that? That's a world that doesn't need God. Self-sufficient, smarter than God. Got it all figured out. That's the way the world is today. You and I, by the way, are archaic. I mean, we eat peas with our toes. We walked out of the cave to come to church today. We are Neanderthals in a suit coat and a Sunday dress to the world. Why is that? Because they think they are smarter than God. It is Romans chapter number one. So the Bible describes this crowd as being prideful. But watch, there's a description that's expressed. They're proud, but then there's this despisal that envelops them. Because the Bible says that they show contempt, but not just contempt, exceedingly filled with contempt. That means saturated. It's as if you would take a glass and dump a liquid in that glass to the point it overflows. It's like you take a load and put it in the bed of a truck 
until that truck bed is so full that the truck bottoms out and the load falls off. What he's saying is that crowd in the world hates me so much. They load it down so full. They are overflowing internally. They have this in their heart. They cannot stand me. They hate me. And it's loaded down every single day. When I think of contempt, it is something that is deep-rooted. It is something that is cancerous. It is something that is eternalized. It is hatred. What it means to contempt, it means to reject. So what we're talking about is a crowd that absolutely rejects the child of God. They don't just disagree. They don't just vote differently. They absolutely, in their heart, hate the child of God. Oh, it's a good day when you and I realize the world is not just against us because of preference. They literally hate the Christian. The world is at enmity with God. You know, if, if the world knew who you were and what you believed as you went to Safeway, you wouldn't be safe. Isn't that true? They'd attack. They would, they'd mob. If the world knew you're walking down the road. I mean, Brother England, you're not talking. We got the worst of everything. I'm, I'm conservative. I am white. I am straight. I am Christian. I drive an American-made car even. I mean, I, I mean I'm not going to ever win any political race whatsoever. Think about it. If this world honestly knew what you and I believed, you, you'd lose your business. Wouldn't you? You lose your friends out there in the world that aren't, that aren't saved people. Because this world, I don't know how to express it, literally hates the Christian. That's what makes it so nauseating when a Christian wants to have a love relationship with the world. Because that's a one-way relationship. The world can't stand you. So there's this internalized hatred, but then there's contempt. That is disdain that is expressed. The scorning, I mean, the scorning. That is expressed. He said, I'm exceeding, look at your Bible in verse 4. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease. So that crowd that is full of themselves, comfortable in the world, they express, they vocalize their hatred for the child of God. They are scorning. I, I was listening to an interview in my office before I came over, and there's this term, I hadn't heard it till today, uh, it's called Christo. Fascism, or something, I don't know if that's even how you pronounce it. But basically, they're looking at American Christians as being public enemy number one in this world. And they expressed their hatred for the Christian how bigoted we are, how racist we are, misogynistic we are, how oppressive we are, how divisive we are. And if you were to listen to the mainstream news media and those that have the biggest platform in our nation, it is not, it is not the Nazis, it is not, it is not the Black Panthers, it is not some terrorist group uh, over the Middle East somewhere. It is the person who has a Bible on their coffee table, prays with their family at night, goes to church on Sunday morning. That is the biggest blight on America. That's the kind of world that this man is living in. Everything is against him. I read a statement I liked it. It said, a Christian without persecution is like a soldier on parade. He looks good, but he's not really doing anything. You and I in this world are supposed to suffer tribulation and persecution. Now, that's just known. But all that is to get to the message tonight. It's so starkly contrasted the situation that he's in with the victory that he finds. And all of that lies in this transition from hostility at the bottom of it to hope in the top of it. And what happens is he takes faith and focuses his faith in a place that can yield victory 
in spite of all of this that's going on. Just like Nehemiah does in his prayer of Nehemiah chapter 4, so the psalmist expresses the same. I want you to notice, we said society's vitriol. We don't have to labor that. We know all about that. But I want to focus for just a minute on the servant's vision. That word vision is so important. There's something about vision that you and I must have in this day and hour. A vision is not just sight. Every animal can see, but animals cannot have vision. You and I are different in the fact that God has given us the ability to lift up our eyes, not just physically, but we can lift up our eyes by faith and we can see potential and promise and possibility with our God. Where there is no vision, a lot of things die. The Bible said people perish. Just a church, a family, a nation, it'll die without vision. But where there is vision, there can be victory. There's a verse tucked away in Lamentations that says, Mine eye affecteth my heart. Do you know your eye is attached to your emotions? What you tend to focus on affects how you feel. What you give your eye to, what you dwell on, meditate on, affects your victory level, if you will. He responds to the vitriol with a vision. First, I want you to see in verse number uh, one, look at it with me. I want you to see it's a controlled vision. Uh, watch what he says, unto thee. Now watch this phrase, lift I up mine eyes. We are talking about a man who all around him hears that echo chamber of negativity. The world is against him. There is contempt and there is scorn. Now, this man has to make a decision. And by the way, all of us are equipped to make the same decision. He has to make this decision whether or not he's going to listen to the negative, the negative things around him and look at those who stand in opposition and allow that to dictate to him how he thinks and how he feels and how he acts and what he does. He says this, I am going to control what I focus on. I am not going to let the narrative control me. I'm going to control the narrative. I'm not going to let the news control me. I'll control the news. I'm not going to let the external dictate the internal. I'll let the internal navigate me through the external. He said, I'm going to take my eyes and put them someplace that can give hope and victory and joy in the midst of the vitriol that is around me. Most Christians fail at that point right there because they don't have enough temperance or character or trust in God to take their eyes off of what they can see and look at something they can't see. So they get consumed with negative things. They watch too much news and don't read enough Bible. They talk more than they listen. Boom. Oh my. They post more than they pray. They, they, they peruse these different things, but they don't ever turn the page of Scripture, and they focus on the negative. And that's why so many preachers and so many parishioners are saying things like, we'll never have revival. We might have well fold it up and go to the house. It is over, gloom, doom, and done because their eyes are in the wrong place. You have got to control. I have got to control. I decide where my eyes go. You say, well, I, I, don't, I, I can decide not to watch CNN. I can decide not to. If it's, I don't even know if it's still functioning or if they've gotten closed. I don't know. But I can control that. I can control not to watch a politician's stump speech. If it makes me upset, why do I watch it? Isn't that weird? Why do we do that? It's like when you eat something, you know that's going to give you gout or indigestion, but you keep on eating it anyway. Why is that? Control your vision. 
Set your eyes on things that affect your heart positively. You walk around looking at negative stuff all the time, then listen, you're going to be negative. You're going to have a defeated attitude. He's saying, I'll determine where my eyes look because where my eyes look is where my mind is going to dwell. Number one, control your vision. Let me just hit it again. Some of you do well. Turn off whatever it is and get back in your Bible. All right, number two, not just a controlled vision, but watch this, a concentrated vision. Look with me at your Bible, concentrated vision. That, by that I mean it's honed in. In verse number one, look at this. He says, unto thee, that's a good word, unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou. Thank God for the these and the thous. This is a good thee and thou right here, by the way. That's the Lord. He said, unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. In verse two, he says, behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. What he does is he takes his eyes and he controls them. And he said, if I'm in control of my eyes, then I can choose what they see. And he thought for a minute and thought, now, what is the best view that I could take in? What is the most advantageous sight that I could allow to rest my attention? He might have thought for a half a second. He might have thought for a minute, but I like the end result. He said, the best view that I could allow my eyes to fall upon is thee. It is thou. It is the Lord that dwells in the heavens. I like what he says. When he calls him the Lord, he's talking about Yahweh. He's talking about Jehovah. He means by that he is the self-existent. God, the eternal unchanging God, a God who is faithfully God in good times and in bad. He is constantly, consistently, concretely, always God. He said, I can look to him in a world that is given to change. I've got a God that never changes. He said, I'll look at him. I'm not going to look at Sanballat. I don't care about Tobiah. I don't care about their slander, contempt, or scorn. I'm going to look above that mess and I'm going to stare at God. He concentrated it, and he sees God no matter how many times. Watch this. No matter how many times he looks and looks away, every time he looks back, God's still there. Isn't that a blessing that God wasn't just God? He's still God. And he's still there. He looks away. He looks back. There he is. He's faithfully God. He's there. He's there no matter good or bad, up or down. A friend that loveth at all times. He said a brother is born for adversity. And there is no friend like the lowly Jesus. There is a friend that sticketh lower, uh, closer than a brother. And I'm glad in those days of vitriol, in those days of darkness and hardship, we can look to that friend of friends, that brother of brothers, and find that he's always there. Now watch this quickly. He sees him as king, master, and father. First he sees God in glory. See what it says in verse number one? Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that, watch how he describes him, that dwellest in the heavens. He looks above the perilous time that he lives in. And when he looks up, you know what he sees? He sees the throne. He gets to look into the presence of God and he sees God as king and God as a preeminent. He sees him as ruling and reigning, not on a temporal seat, but on an eternal throne. Just like Isaiah, who saw the Lord high and lifted up, how it must have helped somebody in the day of Nehemiah when a governor of Syria and these generals of other places were scorning them and contempting them. They were reminded, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what they say. The heart of the king is in the hand of my God. 
I'm glad I know one who sits higher than the seat of Samaria. There's a God who's on the throne up in heaven and he saw him with that train that filled the temple and those cherubims and seraphims and the glory of God around him. And can I say, that's exactly where our God is seated tonight. He has not abdicated his throne. He's not vacated that seat. He is still seated there on the throne in heaven in glory. Oh my. He saw God in glory, but then he saw God in governance. Look at me in verse number two. Governance. Behold as the eyes of servants. Isn't that applicable? Nehemiah was a servant. If anybody knew how a servant acted, it'd be Nehemiah. Behold as the eyes of servants look under the hand of their masters. And as the eyes of a maiden under the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God. He's saying our God is in charge. He's the master. We're the servant. He's in charge. Our job is to obey him. He says, so we just step back and we watch for the waving of his hand. Those people who are scorning and contempting might think that they push the buttons and pull the strings and direct the traffic, but we know who's in control. Our God is sovereignly dictating, determining, and directing everything that's taking place. And so, so we can rest in the fact that when we pillow our head tonight, God is not going to abandon the steering wheel. He's faithfully there at the stern of the ship. He's going to see us on through to the other side. We're just waiting. If God tells us to go, we'll go. But if he doesn't, we're going to stay. If God says stay, we're going to stay. If, if God says jump, we just ask him how high. We're just watching for his hand to motion our direction. It's amazing when you consider that God simultaneously keeps your heart beating in rhythm and then every planet in its orbit. He keeps the ocean within its tide and also numbers every hair that falls out of your head simultaneously. I think he's got it under control. He saw God in glory. He saw God in governance. It speaks of his power. He's the master. But it speaks of something else. I think he sees God in goodness. You know what I mean by that? Think about it. The master is the life source of the servant. That servant gets nothing unless the master gives it to him. That maiden gets nothing unless her mistress gives it to her. I think about this. This is dependence upon God. This is God in provision. This man is looking around and says, you know what? I'm going to set my eyes upon the Lord. He is gloriously high and lifted up. He is in control, and he's the one that gives me every good gift anyway. He said, I'm just going to look to his hand to put the food on my table. I thought about that in Matthew chapter number 15, I believe it is. That Canaanite woman who comes there to the table, and she's talking to the Lord, and the Lord said, it's not me to take the food from the children and give it to dogs. She said, yeah, that's true. She said, but even the dogs get something from the master's table. If they sit there long enough, the master will throw them something. And I see that pilgrim sitting there. He's far more than a dog. He is a child of the king who's at the table. And he thought, I can just watch and wait because sooner or later, that hand is going to get some bread and cast it my direction. Whatever I stand in need of, he can supply it. It's there on his table. I don't have to look to this world. I don't have to worry about what they say. God's the one who makes my ends meet. I can trust in him. So number one, it's a controlled vision. You're going to have to control where your eyes fall. It's a concentrated vision. He's just looking to the Lord. One more, it's a craving vision. He wants something. You see what he means? Look with me in verse 3 and 4. Have mercy. This is what he wants. The end of verse number 2, he says it, until that he have mercy. You know what he wants? Mercy. 
know what he needs? Mercy. In verse 3, have mercy upon us, O Lord. And he says it again, have mercy upon us. You know what mercy is? It is grace in a way, but different. Mercy is given to somebody who is pitiful, helpless, and even guilty. Ephesians 2 and verse 4 says, but God who is rich in mercy... Because he has great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. What this man is saying is, he said, God, I need something to help me endure. I need something to help me excel. I need something that will keep me encouraged. I need something that can help me withstand the disdain of my day. He said, God, I know that you can supply it. The manifold grace of God within that umbrella of God's grace is God's mercy. And he's saying, Lord, I'm just praying. I'm pitiful down here. I'm despised and rejected. But you know what that's like. God, I'm asking, would you show me some mercy? Would you give me what I need to make it through this day? You study out these psalms. There's a similarity. Every one of these psalms expresses satisfaction in God's provision. Every child of God has found God satisfies the need. I want to challenge you tonight. I thought about this verse, this, this psalm and that last Phrase that verse with have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. He's begging God for it. He knows he needs it. And I want to say in days like this, we're not going to make it without God's grace. We're not going to make it unless God gives us some mercy. We need mercy. Our country needs mercy. Our churches need mercy. But newsflash, you and I need mercy. But I'm glad he's abundant in that. Society hates the Christian. That's okay. That's how it's supposed to be. But what we learn from this psalm is we don't look low. We look high. And above the hatred and above the vitriol, there's God in glory, God in governance, and God in goodness who can give us what we need. He saw God as king. He saw God as master. And he saw God as his father. And I'm glad tonight that's who our God is. I want to challenge you this week. Spend more time with your eyes taken in Scripture than the sights and sounds of the world. And I promise you this, the more your eyes fall upon the Word of God, the more hope you're going to have. And the more optimistic you're going to be and the more positive you'll feel. Because listen, the back of the book tells us we, sing, we win this thing. Jesus is in control and everything's all right in our Father's house. Look unto the Lord. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.